Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Clive Cussler, who died at the age of 88 on February 24, 2020, was an adventure writer in the tradition of the pulp magazines and an underwater explorer. Most of his novels featured Dirk Pitt a larger-than-life hero, reminiscent, as Wikipedia says, of Doc Savage, and also, I might add, Indiana Jones, and his adventures involved sunken treasure, hidden artifacts, outrageous villains, and convoluted plots. Over the course of a career that began in 1965, when he switched over from advertising to write, Clive Cussler published 25 Dirk Pitt novels, 17 novels in the Numa Files, 14 novels in the Oregon Files series, 11 Isaac Bell adventures set in the early 20th century, 12 Fargo adventures focusing on a treasure-hunting couple, five books of nonfiction, and two children's books. Two of his books became films, Raise the Titanic, which is discussed in this interview, and Sahara. Richard A. Lupoff, my co-host on Probabilities, and I had a chance to interview Clive Cussler on May 24, 1994, while he was on tour for his most recent book, Inca Gold. Though well into his 60s, he was still in the early part of his writing career, having written only Dirk Pitt novels, of which Inca Gold was the 12th. Your hero is Dirk Pitt, and uh, there are some who say that in ways, you are Dirk Pitt. Are you Dirk Pitt? Well, I think we'd all like to be Dirk Pitt. He, he leads, you know, it's, it's a vicarious life we can all, you know, identify with or wish to. When I began creating him, I, I, I think the only connection was uh, we're both about 6'3". Uh, I've probably shrunk over the last 20 years. His eyes are greener than mine. He does better with the girls than I ever did. And uh, what's really not fair is when we started out together, we were both about 36, and now he's 39 or 40, and I'm 62. So, But uh, I think there's there's a little bit of all of us in Dirk Pitt. A lady did a very nice review, and she said, uh, from the female standpoint, she said, Dirk Pitt is the hero we all long for, and his heroine, Lauren Smith, is the heroine we all long to be. So it's fun to make the, the connection. Do you see any connection between how you created Dirk Pitt and the fact that you used to be in advertising? Uh, yes, because when I decided to write, I didn't have the great American novel burning inside me. So my wife was working evenings at the local police department, so after I put the kids to bed, I didn't have anything to do. And that's when it hit me, gee, I think I'll write a book. I suppose it happens to a lot of people like that. So instead of jumping in, I, I planned for a while. What am I going to do? And then I decided, oh, gee, it'd be nice to have a little paperback series of some sort going. 
So because I came out of advertising and marketing, I began researching all the series heroes, beginning with Inspector DuPont, Edgar Allan Poe, who was the first, really, and then uh, Doyle and Holmes and Bond and Fleming, Matt Helm, Mike Hammer, you name it. And then I decided uh, there's so much competition. Bond was very big in the 60s. What can I do that's different? That's what we always looked at in advertising. What can we do in a different campaign than the competitor? So I thought, I know, I'll do what Sax Romer did back in the 20s. Great writer. And, of course, he had a continuing villain who was Fu Manchu. So I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll have a continuing villain. So I wrote the first uh, book, which was Pacific Vortex. I had this evil old guy with yellow eyes that lived, you know, with gills uh, under the Pacific out off Hawaii, which I think they copied in a sequest about two weeks ago. And, uh, and of course, did away with him in the end, figuring I'd bring him back. But in the next book, Mediterranean Caper, it was just one of those strange things. Pitt took it away, and just I never went back to the old guy, you know, in the sea. I sense a connection here between you and the old pulp magazines. Did you read the pulp magazines at all when you were a kid? Oh, gosh, yes. I, I read the pulp magazines, of course, the old comic books. Uh, and, and Pitt probably is patterned somewhat off Doc Savage. Because uh, <laughs> I, I want to I say that Giardino is not Monk. Uh, Giardino is, is the only guy I used on my... My, my, I dreamed up, well, what am I saying here? He's, uh, he's the only guy in the books I took from real life. He's an Air Force buddy of mine. So, and real oh, writer Haggard, sure, uh, uh, Quartermain, obviously. So, oh no, I read, I read all the heroes when I was a kid. So they, they all made a, an impression somewhere along the line. I wouldn't deny it. Uh, Hemingway always said that he lifted the writing style of Dostoevsky and, and Tolstoy and, and, um, the great story about Thomas Wolfe when he was in the Merchant Marine. He bought a copy of James Joyce's Ulysses, you know, which looks like the phone book. And he copied it, word for word, verbatim, by, in longhand. And after months at sea uh, copying this, he finally finished it and had a stack of paper about four feet thick. And he walked to the stern and threw it all off into the wake of the ship. And his, uh, the crewman, his, his mate, said, you know, my God, after spending all that time copying that book, why did you throw it away? And Thomas Wolfe said, because now I know how to write a book. So, um, yeah, they all stuck. You know, I just, I loved all the great heroes from, you know, even Flash Gordon on. I, I just, uh, and, and as I say, they all had an influence on Dirk Pitt. Is there a Dirk Pitt or Clive Cussler formula? Um, not, well, yes, there is. Um, I started probably with the basic formula A, you know, the pot boiler formula in the first two, where you start with a hero and you go all the way through to the end of the book, right at his shoulder. But then in a book called Iceberg is where I started to slip into the Cussler formula, if you want to call it that. Uh, of the convoluted formula, where it starts out, uh, this case, in Iceland and ended up in the Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland. <laughs> and so then I started, as I say, the very complex formulas or, or, or structure and plotting, uh, which has kind of become my trademark in adventure, which is a little different. So that, that even there's plots that go on uh, that Pitt is never aware of at the end of the book. 
Uh, so, and, and it's fun because people say, oh, you'll never pull this out of the fire, but it's, it's great fun to thread the needle at the end. So, so I've developed, I guess, kind of my own adventure style uh, because of the plotting. Now, there's an organization in, in Inca Gold, and I believe through many of your books, called NUMA, the National Underwater and Marine Administration. Is this an actual entity? Is this something like NASA? It started out in the books that Pitt, uh, the first book he was invited to join this Admiral Sandecker, and then uh, then it became this, this governmental agency like National Atmospheric and Oceanic Agency. And in 1978, I decided to look for John Paul Jonesship, the Bonhomme Richard, and uh, all the uh, trustees of the foundation we were forming, Dr. Harold Edgerton, who invented the strobe light, uh, Peter Throckmorton, Dean of American Archaeology, who discovered all the wrecks in the Mediterranean, uh, Commander Don Walsh, first on the Trieste down to 38,000 feet in the Marianas Trench. All these fellows were trustees. And... Uh, First, they said, let's call it the Clive Cussler Foundation, because my book royalties were providing most of the funding. And uh, I, I have an ego, but I said, no way, that's, that's ridiculous. So then they said, let's call it NUMA, like the one in the books. And so they outvoted me on it, and uh, it's like, yes, Virginia, there really is a NUMA. And ours is uh, uh, a non-profit foundation, which it's, uh, the attorney happened to set it up in the state of Texas, so that's where we're from. Now, according to some research that uh, they sent us, NUMA searched for the con Confederate ironclad Merrimack in the Elizabeth River. Did it find it? That shows you my devious mind. Everybody's out looking for the monitor, and where's Cussler looking for the Merrimack? And they blew it up and salvaged a great deal of it, and most of what was left was dredged out of existence by the Navy in 1942, and they built an oil loading dock there in the Elizabeth River by Portsmouth. But we did find bits and pieces buried in the mud. We think we've got the pilot house that was blown off. Uh, but we can't dredge because it's in the middle of a channel that leads to the Coast Guard station, and, and the Army Corps of Engineers just say there's, there'll be no dredging. So we know pieces of it are there. We just can't get to it. The real NUMA also looked for a, an airplane called the White Bird, flown by uh, Nungesser, as I always pronounce it, but everyone tells me it's Nungesser, and Coley, a, a pair of Frenchmen who were rivals of Charles Lindbergh and almost beat him but disappeared under rather mysterious circumstances. What about your, your uh, attempts to find them? Fascinating story because, of course, they took off two weeks uh, east to west to, uh, before Lindbergh and supposedly vanished. But uh, a fellow by the name of Gunnar Hansen did a lot of research, and Gunnar Hansen, interestingly enough, played Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Murders. But a uh, marvelous guy and a great writer. He did great research and found that uh, people reported hearing the ship go over because of the overcast in Newfoundland. And he found 16 uh, observations, at least by, by ear, in a straight line. So this was a very good indication. Then he, he found, I think, four more in Nova Scotia and six in Maine. So it was almost like, you know, they hit Newfoundland and then went straight south. And the last sighting was a fellow who was fishing for eels in a lake out of Machias in Maine, and he heard it go over and the engine quit. And uh, he thought it went down on trees and some hill. We've looked all over the area. We've used psychics. And the only possibility is they saw it 
come down, but I think maybe it hit the trees and there's another lake on the other side of the hill and perhaps it went into that lake. So we still want to go back and, and try the lake next time. I'd like to talk a little about your latest novel, Inca Gold. It appears you did quite a bit of research for this. Did you actually head down to Peru? No, I didn't. Uh, not to Peru, uh, because that was kind of a background. And even though I use, you know, the jungle and, and, and some of the uh, the antiquities, uh, I just really picked up, you know, from, from research on that. But the part I did do, I tramped all over the Sonora Desert in the area there and, and met with the Indians and, and uh, the uh, there again, the archaeological sites and, and just got a feel for the whole place there and even, even climbed the hill, uh, uh, which I included in the book. So, yes, in one case, no in the other. Did you find the underground river or a underground river leading into the Sea of Cortez? No. Uh, there's a legend about that out in the desert that some old prospector supposedly went down in a cave and found this river, only it's in the, uh, runs from Nevada to California, in a big canyon. And then, um, of course, as they always do, I don't know why, they always dynamite the cave entrance, of course. But there is a group, right, as we speak, that is actually excavating in hopes to find this, this underground river in Canyon. You know, he claimed there was gold down there, but they think it'd be a great tourist attraction if they run onto it. But the last I heard, they hadn't come into a, a giant cavern yet. Did the, uh, I think you call them the Chachapoyan, did those people actually exist? Yes, the Chachapoyas actually, and still exist. In fact, the uh, uh, they were, that was called the Cloud People, uh, the name, and uh, some of them were quite tall. Fair skin, blue eyes, blonde hair. Uh, in fact, the university, I haven't heard the results. Uh, the University of uh, Utah was doing uh, DNA tests on the uh, Chachapoyans to see if there was a connection, you know, with, with Europe. And it'd be interesting to see how that comes out. But they, they really existed. Sounds almost like Vikings blown off course maybe uh, two, 3,000 years ago or longer. I've always felt that someday they, they will actually prove pre-Columbian contact. It'll be an accident, of course. There's no amount of research that could put you on a site. But uh, they, they, they have come up with a lot of things. But archaeologists, of course, just, you know, if you find old coins, they'll say, well, they were dumped there in 1934 if they came from Rome, you know, that sort of thing. But I think someday somebody will stumble on a pre-Columbian shipwreck or a site or something where it would be just indisputable proof that there, were, there was pre-Columbian contact. What is your research on uh, natural disasters, uh, earthquakes and tidal waves uh, in the 16th century? I think I mentioned in the book there, there actually were about four uh, during the course of uh, a few hundred years. And there was one in uh, Chile that swept a American uh, military or naval ship. It sank. The uh, the British ship got away. The German ship was sunk during this tidal wave, an earthquake, seismic disturbance under the sea. And the American ship, oh, I forget the name of the Water Tree, that was it, uh, was swept about a mile and a half inland by the tidal wave, where the remains still rest today, and for many years it was used as a hotel. What brought you to the idea of Peruvian Inca gold. What, what clued you in that that might be the subject for a book? Well, a fascinating legend that uh, when the when Pizarro came into Peru, of course, uh, it was right after a, a call it a civil war between two brothers. 
and I don't know, the names are hard for me to pronounce, but one of them up north was the one that Pizarro uh, captured after slaughtering the, the, the priests, the generals, and all the, the ministers. And this brother said, as you remember the old story, that uh, if you spare my life, I will fill up this room as high as I can make a mark with silver and gold. And the other brother, when he heard this, who was at the capital, said, the heck with that noise. So he took the royal treasury, which reportedly had a chain that weighed, that took 200 men to lift, a gold <coughs> chain that was that heavy. And that gold chain, which plays a part in your book, that gold chain actually is part of the legend then. It was part of the legend. And he uh, then took this this royal treasury and all this gold, and they, they had immense... Uh, hordes of gold. Uh, the sculptors did a marvelous job, despite the fact they had no uh, written language. But they marvelous. They they'd make golden suits for their former dead kings. Uh, uh, they'd copy llamas in gold, butterflies. Uh, apparently, it was marvelous. We we can't see it now because the Spanish melted it all down. But this hoard was hidden in a cave in the Andes, and uh, the Spanish never found it, and it's still there. But I took it in the book and had it carried down onto these balsa rafts, which they actually had. The Incas and the Mayans had a maritime trade going on in those days. And, of course, they transport it up into this inland sea and bury it on this island. Is there a legend of a city of the dead that you have in your book? There's several legends of cities of deads, you know. I mean, you can go from the Sahara Desert to the Andes to, to you name it, and there's always, there's always a legend like that. And it's, it's always fascinating. Uh, very few of them are proven out. And of course, there's still lots of cities, Ophir and, and uh, um, I forget the queen, who was it? They're still looking for her city over in, you know, in North Africa. No, there's, there's lots of dead and lost cities around. It's just a question of whether Clive Cussler will send you around the world to find them. When you do your research, do you use libraries? Do you have your own? Uh, do you have your own library? How do you go about doing it? Because there's a lot of research in this book. Yeah, I think like most writers, you you have a big library. Mine's mostly nonfiction, of course, and um, I have researchers I work with. One in Washington for the archives there, and and generally I just call up people, and they're always marvelous. I'll just uh, call up somebody who's got an expertise in in whatever field that I'm, I'm working in. And they always give me a great deal of help. Or I'll use a librarian to just research out average material, which saves me a lot of time. I, I just love the research. I, I always joke that if my wife ever threw me out of the house, I'd get a sleeping bag and a cot, and I'd move in the basement of a library. So that's uh, the research is always the really fun part. Dick Lupoff. There are some lovely illustrations in Inca Gold, which is rather unusual for a novel. Uh, I've been flipping through looking uh, for the picture of the the string writing device that you describe in the book. Would you talk about that a bit? The Incas did not have a, a written language, which was unusual. And they had very little uh, like hieroglyphics. They didn't have hardly any of that at all. Prior cultures did, but not the Incas. The only thing they had was this what they called a koipu, which um, was strings with knots and strands of different colors, and they could almost tell a story. They were mostly for inventory, chronologic uh, events, uh, dates, history, that sort of thing. And what was fun to work with that is the fact that, uh, of course, the last person who could really translate one of those died you know, four, three, four hundred years ago. But I used computers, of course, to, to uh, delve the mysteries uh, out of it. 
Well, you can't go back and read anything on the Incas that they had themselves. Even the Spanish, you know, wrote very little about them. Is there an actual attempt going on to decode these through computers? I know of none. No, I just, uh, I made it up. Whether there is one or not, I have no idea. And that's that's the great mystery. People don't realize that of the Incas. The Aztecs, of course, had all those marvelous drawings, which very few are left, but the Spanish did preserve some of them. Same thing with the Mayans. But the Incas, there's just literally nothing but some objects. Uh, in fact, most of the great artifacts came from earlier cultures uh, than the Incas. Everything, just about, except for some of the the buildings, uh, but. Most of the items, whether it's tapestries, gold objects, and what have you, were all destroyed by the Spanish. I realize that Inca Gold is an adventure novel, and Clive Cussler is an adventure writer, an entertainer. Still, uh, there's a certain political content that I detect in Inca Gold, a, a great sympathy, I think, for Native peoples and Native civilizations, and a... Uh, at least a, a submerged or muted rage at uh, people who would conquer and destroy their civilizations. Well, this is true. There can be a rage, but let's face it, what are you going to do about it? I mean, you know, it's like trying to stop Hitler back in the 1930s, and it's always going to happen. I, I've probably been very pragmatic. I, I think that regardless of all the marvelous, you know, thinking we have today on everything is good and, and we'll all live together in this utopian you know, atmosphere will never happen. I, I'm sure the Romans talked about it and the Greeks talked about it, and but I suppose we could come back 500 years from now and find that, you know, there were three more holocausts for all we know. Uh, but, you know, we muddle along, do the best we can. But uh, I've always felt it is a great shame when, when ancient artifacts are destroyed so that they're not uh, uh, any longer available for study and for particularly viewing by the public. There's just so much uh, richness about history. And, of course, they're not really uh, teaching history in the schools, you know, like uh, the older folks learned where it was really hit upon. And I, I kind of miss that because, uh, you know, everything that's ever been done today, somebody did it before, <laughs> before we thought of it. You also uh, deal with stolen art objects hinting that, in fact, there there's an underground, an art underground that may be larger than the art overground, that almost as many great works are hidden away with collectors than are actually in museums. Is this true? Yes. I, when I got started researching it, I was, I was appalled how large the, the industry is. You, when you combine stolen art, smuggled artifacts, and um, art forgeries, uh, you'll find an industry and a trade that's second only to the drug trade. It's, it's that huge. Uh, the Gardner Museum in Boston alone, $200 million worth of stolen art right there. So you're talking a billion dollar or more industry. Uh, people buy up smuggled art constantly. There's, there's collections by celebrities, you know, and, and wealthy people. Uh, there are art forgeries in museums that even the curator may or may not know about. Uh, lots of the antiquities uh, are forged. Uh, we don't even know anymore. They even dig up the graves of Union and Confederate Civil War soldiers to get the belt buckles. It's it's a wild uh, field to, to get into. And uh, 
even it's the the drug lords use it for laundering. Oh, it's the art is very big as far as laundering the drug uh, uh, monies. So it is. It's a very fascinating field that's out there. And there's a firm in New York that publishes um, oh, about monthly all the artwork. And I know when I was reading these kind of bulletins and the photographs, I was stunned by seeing pictures of of sculpture and artwork that I'd seen in books that have been stolen. Whether it was sold or for insurance purposes or whether it's somebody, you know, that had a lot of money bought it and just sits down in their basement and stares at it, uh, you know, nobody really knows. Is there a single organization, as there is with the Colombian drug lords in real life? You speculate that it that there is and it's based in the United States. I speculate there is, uh, but I really didn't get a good handle on it. I didn't go into it that deeply. Uh, even the Treasury Department uh, wasn't sure. They just thought there, there probably is somebody that big, but they've never got a handle on it either. To revert to one of your earlier books, your first great success was Raise the Titanic. There has been a great deal of publicity over the years about exploring the wreck or trying actually to raise the Titanic. How does that tie in with your book? Well, of course, uh, reality worked in the other direction. When I wrote the book, uh, I even met with Bob Ballard way back in the 70s. Um, and we thought that because of the uh, great depth, uh, where there's less oxygen content, it's, it's freezing temperatures down there, that the ship would be fairly well preserved. And I came pretty close. I put it at, I think, 12,600 feet. It was found at 12,400. Uh, Pitt in his, his submersible, first thing he sees is a boiler. Ballard in his submersible, the first thing he saw was a boiler. But, uh, unfortunately, the ship, is, of course, had broken too when it sank. That was the great noise everybody heard. There was always rumors that the when it went up on end that the boilers broke loose and crashed through the, the bow. But actually, it was the ship breaking in two. And not only that, but... There are sea creatures, worms, tornadoes, whatever, that, that eat wood and everything else on the bottom. And just about everything organic on the ship was destroyed. And it uh, even the low oxygen and cold temperatures didn't stop the, the corrosion, which is it's rusting away like crazy. Bones, of course, it's interesting. Bodies uh, don't last but more than 20 years uh, underwater. And that's when Ballard found shoes pairs of shoes which he thought maybe dropped and then all of a sudden it started hitting him he'd find a pair here and a pair there and that's where a body it, it sunk in and then of course disintegrated no it'd be great but we'll, we'll never see the titanic raised so that spectacular scene at the end of the movie of that ship coming up out of it like a ghost from the sea and then actually sailing away or uh, under tow that would never happen Unfortunately, it can't happen, though. No. Uh, that was, as it turned out, was pure fantasy. But what did you think of the movie, Raise the Titanic? Uh, the movie was a piece of crap. They did such a, a rotten job uh, f from the standpoint of quality. I don't mind if they change the book. They have to. In other words, uh, the only way you can follow a book in its entirety, you'd have to make a 10-hour movie or do a miniseries, obviously. But they did such a poor job. The screenwriting was terrible. The direction was bad. I remember I, I had a walk-on scene, which was a press conference where Jason Robart as Admiral Sandecker 
was explaining how to raise the Titanic. They had one old camera that kept breaking down. You go to any other production, they got three or four new cameras shooting from every angle. So it was a cheap production, it, despite the fact they claimed they had $40 million in it. That was a lot of hooey. And a lot of the backup actors were very poor. Richard Jordan was a good actor, but he was not Dirk Pitt. And Dirk Pitt never wore a beard. His sidekick, Al Giardino, who's been with him in every book, was written totally out of the movie. So after that, I took all the books off the Hollywood market. I, I won't sell to Hollywood again. There will not be, at least for the time being, uh, a Dirk Pitt movie or TV series, huh? Not in the foreseeable series. We've already turned down a TV series, uh, and we've turned down all the offers on the movies. The quality is what I'm looking for here. I'm not looking for a blockbuster movie, but just one that everybody can look at and says, well, that was a good, good pit movie, we'll say. And Hollywood doesn't work that way. Uh, they keep calling my agent, you know, whether it's a producer, director, or there's actors that want to play Dirk Pitt. And they call the agent, what do they do? How much for an option? How much for an option? That's all they do. My agent says it's not for sale, you know, unless somebody wants to come in with some enormous amount of money and buy all the books as a series. And, but they don't realize that if somebody really wanted it, all they'd have to do is get on an airplane, come knock on my front door and, and con me into, uh, you know, the fact that they're going to try to do a decent motion picture. So I don't need the money and I'm not going to cheat my readers. Uh, and it can be detrimental too. There's a great author, Wilbur Smith from South Africa, a marvelous writer. And he had three god-awful movies made on his books. Shout at the Devil was one with Lee Marvin. I remember that. And it really hurt him on the book market. He used to be up on the bestseller list all the time. Now he barely touches it, and he's writing just as good as he ever did. So to me, Hollywood is no big deal. I can live very well without it. You have said at some time that you don't see the Dirk Pitt books as literature, but just as entertainment. You see a big difference between literature and entertainment? Well, it depends. I guess it's it's the pretentious snobs in back of it that, that differentiate. Now, I've never made any pretense of writing literature. Uh, you know, 15 years in advertising, obviously, I write, write short, snappy copy, and then I, I always overwrite with adjectives and modifiers. I can't help it. In other words, and that's part of adventure, to say that, you know, he's looking with piercing eyes in this malevolent, you know, yawning pit and all that sort of stuff. Readers come to expect that, and I know it's hokey, it's corny, but uh, that's why I say it's it's more in the lines of, of entertainment. If, if I tried to write uh, true literature, you know, I'd have to take all that out and, and uh, try to dress it up and what have you. So even today, I suppose a lot of critics would say that Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and um, Zane Gray wrote, you know, literature. They of course, even Charles Dickens was considered a hack during his own time, you know, but uh, these people wrote great entertainment. My job, I mean, the way I look at it, my job is to entertain my readers in such a manner that when they finish the book, they feel they got their money's worth. What is the appeal, then, of, of a typical Dirk Pitt novel, including the most recent Inca Gold? What sets this aside from a hundred or a thousand other books that are competing for the reader's dollar and his hour? All right. The old hokey word, it's escapism, and and I probably write more, more I give them more escapism for, for the pound or the buck than, let's say, a lot of other authors. 
Just like even in this book, uh, the the first chapter starts off with the, the, these mysterious, you know, people burying this this treasure on this island and leaving this old stone serpent behind, and and then here's Professor Francis Drake capturing this ship in a tidal wave, and then the next beginning, you know, the modern days, the first chapter, these two are lost in this sacrificial pit, and then Pitt shows up. Terrorists. I mean, all this happens by the fourth chapter in the book. So it's just the old Saturday afternoon matinee serial. Each chapter kind of hangs on a hook, and that's all it is. It's just pure fun. It's pure escapism. It's 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 entertainment, and that's that's all I'm trying to write. And nobody else writes it, I guess, exactly like this. There's a lot of what they call the techno thrillers. And yet, I suppose you could say Raise the Titanic was kind of a techno-thriller of its day. No, it's, uh, as we discussed earlier, it's the old Doc Savage, the old, you know, pulp. Uh, it's the comic book type entertainment. And it's it's never been meant to be anything else. When you get to the second half of a book, do you sometimes go, my God, how can I top this? Well, that happens usually in the beginning. You know, everybody says, oh, the last one was your best. And I thought, oh, God, it's downhill from here on. You know, it's it does get tough because uh, the hard part is, you know, after you've written a few books, uh, I'll be writing away and I think, oh, no, I use that same line of dialogue four books back, you see. So that's what's tough with me is I throw so much in there. As you know, it's, you know, it's literally every book has everything but the proverbial kitchen sink. So the hard part is to to be original and not keep using the same theme or, you know, not putting them underground all the time or on a sinking ship or something like that. Do you foresee yourself writing non-Dirk Pitt books? Uh, I've often thought about that. Uh, I'd always love to write a Civil War epic because I've been so involved with it, uh, particularly from the Navy end of all the shipwrecks we found. Uh, I'd love to do a children's book. Ian Fleming did Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I always wanted to do one with the Vin Fizz, which was the uh, Gilbraith Perry when he flew in 1908, first transcontinental uh, flight. Marvelous story. But I don't think I ever will. I'm just not very prolific. And so it takes me, with all the interruptions, I, I'm not a dedicated uh, writer. It's always fun to talk to another author and say, what do you do when you're not writing? And they look at you and say, well, I travel. Well, big deal. You know, I mean, I, I play with my car collection. I run around the country on tours, go to auctions, go to concours. And then six weeks out of the year, I'm chasing after old shipwrecks and old lost airplanes in Maine. So I don't write uh, like Stephen King just writes, writes, writes. I turn out my book and then, boy, I'm gone. I'll come back in six months. Do you ever work as a, uh, as a bartender out in the desert? No, I've never been a good bartender. <laughs> I, I worked nights in a liquor store one time years ago, and I was trying to launch a small advertising agency. But uh, no, I, I, I know what you mean. I, I wrote myself in the book called Dragon because Pitt went to a, a classic car club meet. And that's how it came about. I thought, well, it'd be kind of fun. I'll have the classic car sitting next to him. In this case, I think we raced. And that's what I did. I really did it as kind of a joke, thinking the editor would take it out. And later, when he left it in, I said, gosh, I thought you'd eliminate it. And he said, well, he said, I was tempted. But he said, I thought, oh, well, you know, since you're kind of a goonball writer, I left it in. <laughs> so 
Well, I was amazed. Every other fan letter I, I received always went on about, hey, that was great, but, you know, you messed up. You know, you should have beaten Pitt instead of letting him beat you. So I, I've been accused of it's a big ego trip, but I thought as long as the readers think it's great fun, I, I walk on. In other words, that's what I try to do with my books that, you know, there again. What what can I do that nobody's doing or hasn't, hasn't done? So, you know, as long as the readers get a kick out of it, why not? You race cars in Dragon, and in Inca Gold, you, uh, you're a bartender. What are you in Sahara? I was a prospector. In <laughs> fact, uh, uh, the prospector with his old mule periwinkle, and that's, I kind of mentioned, like, this fellow was an ex-prospector. In fact, I think he goes and, and feeds his mule named Periwinkle in the end. And it's always fun because Pitt and I never fully recognize each other. I think the first time, you know, we shook hands and introduced ourselves and and said something to the effect, you know, your name's familiar, but I can't place the face. And in um, Inca Gold, uh, he doesn't connect at all. And, and Lauren Smith asks the bartender, what's your name? And he says, Clive Cussler. And they're driving off and Pitt said, you know, who was he? And she says, gee, I forgot his name already. You know, so <laughs> it's always, it's kind of fun to do that sort of thing. It's like two ships, you know, passing. I just have one or two other questions. What is a 1948 Tatra? That was built in Czechoslovakia, and it's it was quite a car, very well, f uh, very famous over there. It was uh, one of the chief designer for Tatra, which was an automotive manufacturer. His name was uh, Hans Ledwinka, a very very ingenious guy, and he came up with it's kind of an aerodynamic car. Back in I think the first one was built in about 1934. Had an air cooled engine, big fin on the back, and some oh, it just rides like a feather. And what was so interesting was during the war, the Germans, uh, particularly the officers, had orders not to use the Tatra because uh, so many of them were speeding and with that heavy engine in the rear, they'd slip off wet roads and wrap them around trees and get, it actually probably killed more Germans than the, you know, the, the armies did, allies. But what's so great about the Tatra, uh, the story on it was Lewinka in the 50s who was still alive and uh, the communists threw him in jail for about nine years and then brought him out to run the, the company again sued Porsche and won two million dollars for patent infringements because if you see a Tatra you can see where the Volkswagen came from Porsche didn't really build the Volkswagen until it was after like 1940 and but Lewinka was building the, the Tatra 1934 with air-cooled engines in the rear and if you look at the front end, they're almost identical, except the Tatra has a headlight right in the middle, like the Tucker, that turns with the steering wheel. Nothing new under the sun. Uh, I, I would like to know, with all of these wonderful adventures that Dirk, Dirk Pitt has had, where else can he go and what else can he do? Oh boy, I don't know. That's the part that's getting tough, because I, I know how to structure the book now and know how to write it but the tough part is trying to be original all the time and um, I can always throw him in different uh, backgrounds uh, I think in the next one uh, it does start off in Antarctica but you know it, I soon have to take him out of that area the villains in this one instead of being connected with lost art or, or artifacts will it would be in the diamonds and colored gemstones which is there again a fascinating trade because it's you know the cartel is overpriced diamonds as we all know 
And what bothers me on this one, I always have an ending to work towards, and I haven't conjured up an ending yet. So uh, I'm about 80 pages into it, which is unusual for me. So it's a fact that I just have to mull it over and, you know, come up with some crazy ending like we always do. I think if I, as a reader, detect one common thread running through these books that intrigues me is the notion that the world is filled of, of wonderful and fabulous things if only we could just find them there. Is this the Clive Cussler philosophy? Yes, that's true. I, I uh, Richard, I, I was the kid, you know, that did lousy in school because I was always staring out the window and I was always on the deck of a pirate ship and I I think there's there's still treasures, uh, odd things to be found yet. I still think there's a sea serpent out there somewhere. And I've never been a big believer in Bigfoot, uh, but nor the Bermuda Triangle. But I think there's a lot of things out there we haven't seen yet. For ex we've mapped every inch of the moon, but we haven't really fully mapped or seen more than 1% of the, the bottom of the oceans. So I think there's lots of secrets we haven't tapped into yet. And there's a lot of things that haven't been found. There's Egyptian armies that are lost in the dunes, uh, lost cities, lost treasures, a lost covenant of the ark. Uh, uh, who knows when somebody will get lucky or as we talked about the uh, pre-Columbian, you know, artifacts, uh, a ship, uh, treasures, who knows that might be found, uh, even bones of, you know, Europeans in some place in South America or the United States. So I think there's a lot of great, marvelous, intriguing discoveries yet to be made. The final Dirk Pitt solo novel, Celtic Empire, was published in 2019, which also saw the publication of The Titanic Secret, which featured both Pitt and Isaac Bell, each operating a century apart. Wrath of Poseidon, a Fargo adventure, is scheduled to be published this May, and Journey of the Pharaohs, a Numa Files novel, was published on March 10th of this year. He did wind up selling another Dirk Pitt novel to Hollywood, Sahara, in 2005, with Matthew McConaughey as Pitt, and also featuring Penelope Cruz and William H. Macy. It turned out to be one of Hollywood's most expensive flops to date, and Clive Cussler never sold another book to the movies. You've been listening to a 1994 interview with the late adventure novelist Clive Cussler, who died at the age of 88 on February 24, 2020. My co-host for this Probabilities Archive interview was Richard A. Lupoff. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>